Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Thanks for sharing your experience with it. Yeah, and, and we might go into this later over the next few weeks, but... These heart practices are taught traditionally in three different ways. You know, one is that we're always trying to train our attention to be more present. The attention is habituated to the thinking mind. So meditation is always about noticing when your mind wanders and trying to remember to recognize that you're here right now. Right? We kind of unintentionally fall asleep into plans and memories and daydreams. That's just the nature of the mind. It's not our fault, but the attention has become kind of habituated towards thinking. So heart practices like any other meditation in this tradition, it helps you to have something to focus on. Your body, the phrase, always returning back. And they call that the application of a concentration practice. So the heart practices help you concentrate. The second thing that they help us to do is sometimes called a purification practice, which means that understandably as you start to try to develop a heart that's filled with loving kindness and compassion and gratitude and equanimity, you come up against all of those places where there's wounding or skepticism or doubt, right? All of these things we work on in therapy, these negative core beliefs. I'm not good enough, I don't deserve this, I can't do this, right? There's, they're all in here. And part of the practice helps to illuminate where there's some uh, discomfort, where we come right up against kind of our historical pain or the skeptical mind. And we start to, over time, practice loving kindness as a way to dissolve or purify those barriers to our own heart. Those barriers have been there for a good reason. They're the best strategies we had or learned through our caregivers or at times in our life where we needed to be skeptical and distrusting and hard on ourselves in order to try to get out of something. Right? But those barriers keep us also cut off from accessing very important things like compassion and kindness, usually first and foremost towards ourselves. So loving kindness meditation will help us to dissolve those barriers, and they call that a purification practice. Now the third, and the one we usually think we're trying to do, which is one of the applications of the heart practices, is that we're trying to access and cultivate this quality, this, as the Buddha calls it, this beautiful quality of heart and mind. And so sometimes we do feel like we have access. And over time, in my experience, the barriers dwindle. There's more spontaneous moments of kindness towards myself and towards other people that kind of arise, sometimes surprisingly so in my life. And so whatever we get 
during the practice, we're either cultivating just concentration of trying to come back, we're cultivating a relationship to our barriers towards the practice, or we're developing an access to the mind state of loving kindness itself. All three are good. Your mind's distracted, good. You're, you're practicing concentration. You don't feel it, good. You're practicing purification. You feel it, good. You're practicing the cultivation. Does that make sense? The Buddha tends to do this a lot. He makes it so you really can't lose. He's a good guy. So this morning I wanted to start by talking about how we enter into the Dharma, usually they say through one of two doors. Just kind of depends on our conditioning and what we're set up with, the parts of the Buddhist teaching that speak to us or resonate with us the most. And they say that usually we tend to resonate either with the wisdom aspect of the Buddhist teachings. These are maybe people that appreciate the pragmatism and the empirical nature of the practices or the people that tend to enter through the door of the heart. The people that resonate with the peacefulness of the Buddhist teachings. To approach the world with kindness and with compassion and forgiveness and gratitude and equanimity. People that are looking to live more vulnerably and from a place of having a less defended heart. You may see the Dalai Lama kind of embodying these qualities of lightness of being. And these people are more like, I want that. I want to be more open, less guarded, have more access to kindness and compassion in my life. Now, I'm not an absolutist, so I don't think that we're all entering through one door or the other. We usually tend to appreciate qualities of the wisdom side of things and the heart side of things. But I have kind of found that there are people that tend towards different entries into the Buddhist teaching. And so I'm curious, and it's even better if you're brand new. So if your answer is, I don't know, I don't know anything about the Buddhist teachings, it's even better because even just as you think of Buddhism, your idea of it, I want to ask everyone in the room, even the people that are new, what do you feel like appeals to you the most about the Buddhist teachings? Is it the pragmatism, the empirical nature of it, understanding your mind, kind of the psychology approach to things, or is it the quality of the heart? And so we'll start with the wisdom people. Who are those people, I'll raise my hand for this one, that are more interested or just kind of more easily resonating? Keep your hands up, I'm just curious. Okay, cool. Nice. We're like half the people. What about the heart people? Raise your hand. Yes. Nice. A little bit more. I'm envious of the heart people. Because I've always been the wisdom person. I've always been good at school. I've always valued critical thinking and humanism over religion. Even my approach, as you probably can tell if you've heard me teach the Dharma before, is to always try to demystify the teachings, make them accessible. And I believe strongly that the Buddha sought to do the same thing. There's a teaching called the Kalama Sutta 
that tells a story about a time that the Buddha traveled the world, not really the world, but his region of the world, teaching and offering these practices, the Dharma. And he got to this place, this town, where the villagers were referred to as the Kalamas. And the Kalamas kind of were fed up with it because they were being evangelized to pretty much every week. There was a new teacher. And after the Buddha kind of expounded upon his teaching and uh, offered what he had to them, one of them raised their hand and they said, hey man, I dig what you're saying. Sounds really great, very practical, but why should I believe you? Last week we had the Jain teacher here. Next week, we're having the fire uh, ascetics here. Why should we listen to you? And the Buddha said, very skillfully, you shouldn't listen to me. He said, you should investigate for yourself. There's this word called ehipasiko, to take it inside of your own investigation. And when you see for yourself that these practices or teachings are helpful and they lead to your welfare and happiness, only then should you adopt and trust in them. So I've always been interested in the pragmatism of the Buddhist teaching. And like I said, I've kind of been the uh, teacher's pet kind of person. And early on in my practice, I remember I memorized the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. I learned about the four heart practices, the four foundations of mindfulness. You'll tell that we have a lot of lists in this tradition. I learned about the five aggregates, the five spiritual faculties, the five or the seven awakening factors. I even got into the Abhidhamma, which are the texts on Buddhist psychology. And I learned about the 12 links of dependent origination. I found out that there are 52 mental factors, of which seven are universal, six are occasional, 25 are beautiful, and 14 are unwholesome. (laughs) And early on in my practice, I remember The wisdom aspect of what I was learning was helpful. It really was. I started to relate to my mind rather than from my mind. And I had a map that helped me relate to my mind differently. To see it less personally. To take my suffering that the mind was creating not as my own, but as the conditioning of this mind. And to be able to see this conditioning through wisdom, through clarity, through mindfulness. And to give you a sense of the degree to which I leaned on the wisdom factors, one of my first pieces of practice guidance I received from my teacher, Dave, at the time was to get out of my head and to get into my heart. And his exact words were, Andrew, you know you can't outsmart suffering sometimes. You actually have to open up your heart to it, too. No matter how much I knew the Buddhist teachings, I still had to go through the experience of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, being liked and not liked. I had to go through the experience of dealing with physical illness, 
of losing friendships, of getting my heart broken. I could suffer less, but the Buddha didn't just teach us how to suffer less. He taught us how to suffer well with an open heart. Because there's some elements of suffering that are unavoidable. I call it the unsolvable math problem. You know when a friend's going through a hard time and there's nothing you can say or do and there's that awkward feeling of like, what do I say or do? (laughs) Those are those moments where we can't say or do anything. We can simply exist alongside the pain that we're experiencing. That's it. I'm here for you. I care for you. I'm with you. In today's topic, I want to speak on the liberation through the heart. The Buddha calls this citta vimukti, which means liberation through the heart. And I want to introduce these four qualities of heart. It's kind of cool that there are four of them because it's like the four chambers of our physical heart, you know? And they are loving kindness or metta, compassion or karuna, appreciative joy or mudita, and equanimity or upekka. Now, Like all things Buddhist, the paradox exists that if we have this room that has two doors, the door through wisdom and the door through the heart, it leads to the same room. It's just what parts of the teachings do we emphasize? And I feel like it's best to have keys to both doors. They say that the practice of awakening, of freeing ourselves from suffering, is the cultivation of these two wings, wisdom and compassion. But they say that awakening in the Buddhist teaching is not a belief, it's a practice. It's not something you believe in, it's something you do. And so I like to say that wisdom, if we were to put it as an active word, what do you do to cultivate wisdom? Well, the practice of cultivating wisdom is the practice of trying to see clearly. It's the action of trying to develop more moment-to-moment awareness. All of these little moments that we practice in formal meditation of trying to recognize when the mind's wandering to wake up, to observe the patterns of the mind, the reactions of the heart. This is the cultivation of seeing clearly. It's something we do. You know, for a long time in my life, I think I'd heard about You know, whether it was 12-step recovery for me early when I got into recovery from addiction. I had heard about the kind of the promises or the benefits of a way of living that wasn't chained to the cycle of drug and alcohol addiction. And I wanted it. 
but I didn't want to do the work to get it. And the same is true for the teachings that the Buddha has to offer, is that these are things to undertake as practices. If we want clarity, we have to spend more time trying to notice what's happening in the moment, trying to be mindful throughout the day. It's not just 10 minutes at the beginning of the day or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. We do that practice so that the mindfulness will continue. And we've all had these moments, these moments of clarity, right? Where you realize that you're really caught up in a resentment or you're really caught up in some moment of reactivity and you stop in that moment and you choose a different path. Right? Like Viktor Frankl says, there's a space between a stimulus and your response. He said, in that space lies the power to choose your response. And in your choice lies your happiness and your freedom. And we've all had moments where time seems to kind of slow down. Like you really want to just react, but you just pause instead. That's a moment of clarity. Small moments over time create bigger moments. Small moments of awakening create bigger awakening. Now that speaks to seeing clearly, but what about this other part, this other door of responding wisely? How do we engage with life on life's terms? If life is impermanent, that means that we cannot construct the world to our liking. We can do so temporarily. We can pay our electric bill and have the AC working, but the AC is going to break at some point. And it's never convenient when it does, and you never want to shell out the 10 grand to get a new unit. At some point, all of these things that we kind of construct to make us comfortable, they all, and hopefully not all at the same time, but we've all been through periods of our life where they seem to be all happening at the same time. <laughs> I call these moments the gift of dukkha, the gift of enough suffering to where you're desperate enough to realize maybe I should stake my happiness on something more than just the comfort I can fix, manage, and control in my life. Maybe I'm looking for a deeper peace that comes from letting go of control and opening my heart with kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So not only do we practice these wisdom factors of the Buddhist teaching, but we also practice and cultivate these heart factors. This was helpful for me early on because, like I said, I felt like everyone in the room was uniquely capable of feeling love and kindness and compassion. I would go on retreats and people would be crying and I'd be like, when am I going to fucking get to cry? I'm just angry. And my meditation teachers helped to point out, well, maybe anger and opening to that is your practice. Cultivating compassion towards the parts of you that don't feel capable, that feel stuck, that don't know how to move forward. 
Because you see, I was used to moving forward with my mind, with my intellect. And Buddhism will put you right in a moment of confrontation where you realize that you can't fix the problem of human suffering with your mind. And so I had to struggle and struggle and struggle to get to that place of surrender where my heart could open. And to be honest, I still do. Rachel knows. I talk to her all the time. I go through these periods of time where I'm just like, I know what the solution is. You ever feel like that? You're like, I've listened to the fucking Dharma talk. I know to just let go. But how do you do it? How do you do that? We cultivate. We train the heart to start to feel like it can open. And in the beginning, maybe it's not have compassion in my heart, but maybe it's to try to hate this moment less. You know, in the beginning, it's maybe not that I can somehow just magically let go of all my control and be open to things as they are, but maybe I can just control this moment less. And I'm telling y'all, if you want the, like, hack to the Buddhist teaching, always start where you are instead of trying to get where you want to go. That's the trick to it. So if you're noticing that you're really angry or really controlling or really insecure or really whatever, then accept that you're really that way. You're really having that experience. And we start by trying to open a little bit more. And maybe that means just trying to react a little bit less. So what are these sublime states, the Brahma Viharas? You know, the Buddha's choice of words to label them Brahma Vihara. Brahma in his time meant uh, God, the creator. And Vihara means monastery. It was a place where spiritual mendicants, spiritual people of his time would live. It was home. And so literally translated, Brahma Vihara means the home of God. Now, there was this tradition at the time that the Buddha lived where it was believed that if you're born into a certain caste, even though they didn't use that uh, terminology back then, that your job was to kind of uphold your roles and duties. And there was one caste at the top called the Brahmins, and their job was to perform these rituals. And they would do them all day long, performing these rituals, performing these rituals, performing these rituals. And it was believed that if they did their job well, if they continued their performance of these rituals, then upon death, they could merge with Brahma, the creator. And so Buddhist scholars think that the Buddha talking about these four heart qualities that we're supposed to cultivate as the home of God, the point of that from maybe a historical context was to show that the Buddha was saying the God that you seek is not out there. You don't need to please and please 
and perform for and fear the judgment of. He said that everything you have that's needed for your liberation, for your happiness and your well-being is within your own heart. It's the home of God. And you have it in here. And he said, basically, you just got to stop rearranging the furniture all the time and moving out of that home. You've got to try to stay in the home. So the Buddha calls these the sublime states. They're also referred to as the illimitables. This means that we don't just try to practice compassion towards those that are easy to practice compassion towards. Damn the Buddha for this one. He really creates a very high bar, like the highest. And to give you an example of how expansive he wants the inclusion of our compassion to be, I'll read the Metta Sutta. This is his direct words. And I just want you to pay attention to how he's talking about how not just loving what's easy to love, but also what's hard to. So these are the Buddha's words from the Metta Sutta. And this comes from the earliest recorded discourses, 2,600 years old. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, and not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, Outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. I love it every time I read it. He says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. I've heard the Dalai Lama talk about this, that you know, maybe in the 
religious Buddhist perspective. It's not something that's required of us to believe. Uh, over time, as I verify more and more of these teachings and practices in my own life, I come to a deeper faith of maybe things like this for myself. But again, not a requirement. The Dalai Lama has talked a lot about the idea of us being born and born over and over again in many incarnations. And he says that we've actually been born and born over and over again so many times that we've each been each other's brother and sister and mother and child and boss and employee and caretaker And what would it be like, just as a, obviously the world isn't that way, in the sense of not everybody living from that truth or that possibility, let's say. But what would it be like if we did? And you see this culturally in some places a little bit differently. You know, I'll tell a story about a time I went to uh, Turkey, and this happened when I talk about appreciative joy later uh, in a few months. But being in places in the world where this value of community is really at the forefront and being offered uh, the generosity of complete strangers, people that have taken care of me when I was really down and out and struggling for no other reason. They wanted nothing from me. You see, I grew up thinking that love was conditional. And I don't always live and lead my life from an unconditional place, but it is fucking clear to me that that's what the Buddha is asking us to do. It's very clear to me. Now, that may be hard, and that may be really hard, because what do we do when there are people causing harm and we're trying to also love them unconditionally and keeping in balance our love for ourselves and our safety and the love for other people that may be harmful for us? And how do we actually navigate that? And the understanding that we can let people into our hearts without having to let them into our homes. We can let people into our hearts knowing that suffering begets suffering. That their pain and misery is what causes them to perpetuate suffering in the world. Why is it true that the majority of perpetrators of sexual assault have been assaulted themselves? Why is it true that people that have been re in rehabilitation in prisons longer tend to have the highest recidivism rate? Well, if you teach them that this is acceptable, then they come to learn that that is acceptable. Suffering begets suffering. Hatred begets hatred. And so navigating that complexity is hard. You may feel it now, even as I talk through it. It's not easy. It's not always clear. And that's why it's a cultivation. It's a practice. It's not about outsmarting or figuring out the right answer. My favorite response from Dharma teachers over the year is, I don't know. So what are these four qualities? I'll go through them quickly because Rachel and I, Rachel's, Rachel's over here, by the way, to put her on the spot. Uh, she co-teaches this Sunday morning group. 
We're going to be walking through each of these over the next uh, few months. But first, I want to introduce metta, loving kindness. It's commonly translated in our uh, English language as loving kindness. I'm personally fine with that. I like that translation. Um, I know that we can have a lot of hang-ups around the word love, so it might be helpful to know that it actually comes from this word mito, which means something more like friend. And so in a sense, maybe a, a better translation than loving kindness is, is a more direct translation of this word metta means a boundless or an unconditional friendliness. The Buddha taught metta as a appropriate response to all experience. So not all of the heart practices are appropriate to every experience. Compassion's appropriate response to pain, for example. And compassion's not the natural response to things like excitement and joy. Mudita is the which is a non-attached appreciation, an ability to experience enjoyment without control and clinging is the practice of mudita. And that's, that's around pleasure and, and joy. Equanimity is kind of the basis of our practice. We're always trying to find a balance, a balanced way of relating to life on life's terms. And so that's equanimity. But metta, the Buddha said, is appropriate in every situation, whether it's painful, pleasurable, neutral, kindness. So at its base, metta is a pervasive worldview. I would say it is a uh, contemplative exercise, which means that we want to actively think about it. Doesn't mean you have to like know what it is or believe in it, but you want to actively be reflecting and contemplating on what is a kind way to move through this experience or this conflict or this situation. Kindness does not mean that we can't be open and share honestly what we feel. It doesn't mean we can't set boundaries. It doesn't mean we have to be nice in the sense of nice meaning avoiding conflict. But kindness means that we don't have to be harsh. We can have a word I don't use a lot, but I like mercy. Which means when you have an option to make things harder... On ourselves and other people, we choose not to out of kindness. You know these moments where like someone really pisses you off and you want to just like make it a little bit harder for them? That's an act of kindness. It doesn't mean I can't say, hey, that really upset me and I didn't really feel well taken care of and I'm not going to be able to use your services again or to interact with you in this way in my life because it doesn't work for me. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that I'm choosing to not make it hard on them. That's ill will. It's a subtle form of hatred. It's a subtle form of violence that we're all capable of. So kindness is a, metta is a pervasive worldview that wishes for all beings to be at ease, including oneself. And it uh, has ethical implications rooted in non-harming. The second is karuna, compassion. I feel like this clock hasn't moved in a while. Oh, we're good. 
you lose sense of time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, karuna is compassion. It's a wise response to pain. I love the translation of it. In Pali Sanskrit, karuna means a quivering of the heart in response to pain. A movement of the heart in response to pain. And the fact of the matter is, is that all of these qualities, I believe, this has become my perspective over time in this path, these are all qualities that are merely covered up by, the Buddha calls them the three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. So they, they are actually both our natural state, our true state of being, and the, the thing that we can draw out and access that's covered up by our reactivity. And so I like to think of compassion as the heart's natural response to pain. That when you feel and experience pain, you care. You care. Even a spider cares. If you go to squish a spider, what does it do? You hover a sandal above it for a moment. Before you squish it, it squinches up and it runs off. It has a sense that it has a life. A very primitive sense a very reptilian sense, and this isn't an argument for veganism or vegetarianism. You can figure that out yourself. But beings tend to have this sense that they care and they would like not to be hurt. But we don't often know how to care in a compassionate way because it's vulnerable to do so. And compassion in, in Buddhism is more than just empathy. It's more than just feeling with and caring for. It's really more in line with the true definition of compassion, which is a wish, a deep desire for all beings, including oneself, to be free from suffering, pain and suffering. So it's both a capacity to open to pain, that's empathy, but it's also a genuine aspiration to find freedom from its causes and conditions. And the Buddhist path is all about trying to uproot the causes and conditions that perpetuate suffering. Mudita is the flip side of the coin of compassion. Compassion's for pain. Mudita is a wise response to pleasure. It's sometimes referred to as sympathetic joy, which is uh, trying to help us to, it's an antidote for jealousy. It's actually trying to help us to appreciate and delight in the joy of other people's success and happiness. And not just success in a material way, but when people are happy. This is one of the most embarrassing things for us to admit. I know it is for me, but sometimes I have a hard time when other people are happy. And if I look at that deeply, as I've tried to do over the years, it's because I'm afraid that there's not enough of it to go around. I feel like it's a reflection of my own happiness. It's, you know, it's this kind of scarcity. And non-attached appreciation is if I start with myself, if I can learn to appreciate and enjoy my own happiness without clinging and controlling and craving then it's easier for me to appreciate and enjoy the happiness of others. 
And we'll go into and we'll talk about some of the research. There's actually been a lot of psychological research around uh, in, in the field of positive psychology around like gratitude and it being a uh, uh, this kind of like feedback loop of this dopamine response. And we'll talk about like some of the interesting science behind some of this. Lastly, but not leastly, there is the practice of equanimity. Equanimity is bringing wisdom and balance in our relationship with pleasure and pain. It's the part of us that can take each moment situationally, knowing that there's no rule book written on what compassion looks like or what non-attached appreciation looks like or what metta and loving kindness looks like, but it's the ability to bear wisdom in mind when trying to respond to life on life's terms. In some ways, it's the practice of non-attachment, which doesn't mean disengagement. We'll talk about this down the road, but equanimity is not indifference. It's not this spiritual bypass, but it's the understanding that all we really can do is try to engage and open our hearts and respond wisely to the conditions. We can't control the conditions of life, ultimately. So equanimity always holds this wisdom in mind, which is that my happiness depends upon how I relate to things, but not to the things themselves or the outcome of things. And isn't that kind of a trip, that my happiness, my true, genuine happiness, not momentary happiness when I get a day off and I get to go have fun with my friends. That's a, that's a worldly happiness. It's a good thing. But my genuine happiness, it directly relates to my relationship to experience, not the experience itself. So I'll close. We'll be going over these in the next few uh, weeks with a quote by a guy named Jeff Brown. He says, it's not about letting it go. It's about letting it in. It's about letting it in deep. It's about letting it through. It's about being true to your feelings. It's about giving your experiences the attention they deserve. And that may take a moment or it may take years. The trick is not to shame your need to hold on to what has yet to be resolved. Let it go is the mantra of the self-avoidant, feigning resolution because they lack the courage or the preparedness to face their feelings. Let's not play that game. Let's instead let things in instead of go. Let things in and let things through until they're fully and ready to shift. Let it grow into the transformation at your heart. We write our story by fully living it, not by letting it go before it's time. <laughs>